Okay. Uh, quick recap from last week and see if there's any questions from last week. Uh, we kind of went through a lot of definitions. Uh, one of the big things that I've tried to hit home the past really two, two weeks is that the author of whatever text in the Bible you're reading is the one who determines what the text means. You don't determine, the text itself doesn't determine, the, the writer of the text determines. And one of the things we looked at you know, was like implications, how Paul meant this, but there are things that are consistent with that that are implications. Like we looked at, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, but don't get drunk on beer is an implication. Don't get drunk on vodka is an implication that is part of that extended meaning. So we looked at a lot of those things. Uh, we looked at stuff like uh, um, words, how words have particular meaning, and we've got to know what the author means when he uses this word, and there's a range of meaning, things like that. So was there any questions about last week that kind of came up in your mind? Okay. Well, let's get going. There was a question asked the first week. Uh, we're going to spend about half of our time tonight really answering that one question uh, because I think it's an important question and I think it's a question we probably haven't spent a lot of time actually thinking about. I think we probably assumed some things, um, not in a wrong way. We just probably assumed um, that it would work this way, but I want us to dig into this a little bit. And the question is this, what role does the Holy Spirit play in interpretation? What role does the Holy Spirit take in interpretation? And please, if along the way, ask questions. Let's talk. Don't make me talk the whole time. Um, you know, you have often, and I've often heard, and you may have even said, I have said in the past things, um, when, when you're talking about reading the Bible, people say it like this. You know, before I read the Bible, I always pray and ask God to show me what it means or reveal his word to me, Right? Or you might have heard someone say, you know, well, this passage, you know, the Holy Spirit showed me the passage means this or that. And while it is not a bad thing at all to pray before we read the Bible, we need to understand and be clear on what particular role the Holy Spirit is going to play when you go home and open your Bible and read it. What role does he play? The Holy Spirit inspired, so the first role that he plays, so we're going to kind of back up. There's a couple other questions that you have asked that I think that kind of along this we're going to answer as well. So one is the first role of the Holy Spirit is that he inspired the authors. Right, we've talked about this, so I'm not going to beat on this, but 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.20, you know that the word of God, that God's word is uh, breathed out by God, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. Uh, you know, those are really um, important verses. Um, we talked about how the author, when they write the Bible, was conscious. They had conscious thought. Uh, they were not in a trance, as they, but they were carried along, directed mysteriously by the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the reasons we know that they were not in this trance-like state is because we see their particular writing style. We see their particular grammar. Um, we see their particular theological influence. Um, and so the Spirit somehow has worked through personalities of particular authors so their personalities shine through and yet somehow mysteriously we also have the word of God. Uh, a good example of this is Luke 1, 1 through 4 um, sheds light on how the author speaking out of his own knowledge in his own particular situation. So Luke opens up his gospel account and he says this, 
And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here is Luke in a situation where he's read these other accounts, but he's like, he's got this friend named Theophilus, and he's like, I wanted to write an account so that you could understand all the things that happened with Jesus. Um, and so that's his situation, was his, so his personality kind of coming out of that. Um, so how then can what men wrote be inspired, or how can it be perfect and without error if men wrote the Bible? Let me give you an example. Isaiah eleven twelve, God will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. All right, so think about this. So Isaiah is writing something. God will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What well, this time in history, did they believe the world was round or flat? Flat, right? Um, they believe it was flat. Um, people have used this verse and others like it to say, you know what? The Bible cannot be trusted because the Bible says the world is flat because it has corners. Four corners. You can't have corners if it's a globe. The Bible's wrong. Okay? So the Bible can't be trusted because um, the world doesn't have corners. Well, God knows that the, that the world is round, right? Even from the very beginning, obviously he created, he knows the world's round. And if God wrote the Bible, how then could Isaiah say that it has corners? Well, the, the Spirit inspired Isaiah to write, but the Spirit works within that authors, what that author is willing and trying to say, trying to communicate, the, the spirit is not, and, and I guess could, but let me say cannot, or at least does not, give Isaiah understanding or grammar or scientific understanding that he does not currently possess. So the spirit is not saying, oh, Isaiah, the world doesn't have corners, you need to, you know, you don't say that. So, so the spirit is working within Isaiah's understanding of the world. Okay, and so uh, Isaiah, when he is writing, is not, his intention is not to, to speak on scientific matters of the shape or function of the earth. Isaiah intended to communicate that God was going to bring all his people home, right, from all across the globe. He just didn't understand that the world was a globe, and so he says the four corners of the earth. So the Holy Spirit's inspiration does not extend to all subject matter. Remember last week we talked about subject matter, subject matter being all the things that the scripture touches. So the, the scripture touches um, archaeology and uh, boats and fishing. And it talks about a lot of things, but, and those are subject matter, but that's not the point the author is making. Those are just the situation that's happening. And so the author is not intending to talk about how the earth was, what shape it is, but the author is trying to mean he's going to bring all his people home, okay? And so the text can still be um, inerrant, without error, perfect, because he's not intending to say something on science. And the Spirit is still inspiring it through Isaiah's knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Well, in his understanding in that day, yeah, I mean, that's what they thought. Yeah, so let me give you another example. Um, I want to, I can't remember where this is at. I want to say it has something to do with Hezekiah. But there's a, there's a verse that talks about the sun standing still, like the sun stopping in the sky, right? And the, but, the way, but the sun doesn't move, right? The earth moves. But in their understanding at the time, they look at the sun, well, no, the sun moves, right? We don't move, the sun moves. And so he's not wrong in what he's trying to say. He's just wrong in his scientific understanding he doesn't have at the time. And so the Bible is correct in what he intended to say, even when it messes up particular scientific things that they didn't understand. And that's okay. It's, not, it's still inerrant. It's still without error. Because he's not trying to tell us about the sun and how the, the solar system works. They're not trying to tell us the shape of the world. And that's not his point. He's not writing a scientific textbook. He's just telling you he's going to bring all his people home or the sun stood still or whatever. Well, everyone did. Everyone, before, pre, before Capernaum, everyone did. Yeah, when was, when was Capernaum? Do you remember? A.D.? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there are still people who believe the world's flat. <laughs> I know, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah, all right. Right. Right, right. And so there are some places like that where this is, it's just a figure of speech. Yeah, for sure. A.D.? Okay. Oh, really? During the Reformation, interesting. Yeah, so everyone pre-Capernaum before 1500 thought the world was flat. Uh, At least we don't know of anyone who thought otherwise. Um, Okay, so the spirit is, is... Intimately evolved in the writing of Scripture. The second, the, the role of the Spirit, he actually forms the Bible. This is a question we've, we've had some questions about, and so I want to give you some clarity here. When Jesus comes on the scene, there is the Old Testament, right? And the big question is, how did the New Testament books get added to the Bible? Uh, and it's really a question, uh, so the, the word that we use as we talk about the canon, C-A-N-O-N, the canon of Scripture, Canon is a Greek word that referred to a straight staff or rod, uh, and later was understood to mean some sort of measuring stick or standard. So the canon of Scripture means it is the standard by which the church should live, believe and live. And so after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came, the church is moving, and the letters are getting written, the gospels are getting written, um, the books were added slowly and the, and the early church understood slowly which books made it and which didn't. There were about 20-ish books that there was wide agreement on very quickly that these are scripture. Um, There's some other ones that took some time. For example, Hebrews took some time to get added because we don't know the author of Hebrews, and so that was a little bit of a hang-up. Um, there were a lot of factors that led the early church to determine which books made it in, which books didn't. There's a lot of you know, books about Jesus and about theology and about the early church that don't make it in. One thing that is important to note, though, I think, is that the church did not determine these books were the word of God. Rather, they simply recognized which books were the word of God. Does that make sense? They didn't say, this one's the word of God, this one's not. They simply uh, recognized, oh, this is clearly the word of God. This is clearly not. 
Here's some of those factors that they use to determine which ones made it in. Uh, who, who was the author? Right? So, and particularly apostolic authorship. Was it, who was this written by? Was it Peter? Right? Is it apostle? It makes it in. Paul, apostle, probably makes it in. The date of writing is very important. Right? So there are some books that are written significantly uh, late after the life of Jesus. And they're so late that it's the his, historicity of them isn't very accurate. So they don't make it. Uh, and then also the unity and agreement with the rest of the scriptures. Um, that's important. So they look and say, does this contradict the Old Testament or, the, or these other books, these other writings, or does it have a unity and cohesion with the rest? Uh, and so they used all of those things to determine, okay, these, these seem to be the word of God. And I think, I think it's helpful to say this. We believe in God's sovereign control over the world. We believe that God's sovereign in his sending his son and his son dying and his son raising his son from the dead. And, and God sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to, to work in the world, right? Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you one uh, better than me, stronger than me. He's going to do more than me. Um, and I need to go so he can come. Um, and he sends the Spirit. The Spirit inspires the authors to record what, to record the Bible. But it is also in line with Scripture, I think, to think that God through the Holy Spirit would also preserve those things that the Spirit inspired. And so he inspires Paul to write this book, Peter to write this book, and the Holy Spirit would also preserve those works, right? And then work through men later in the church uh, to collect those books and put them into uh, the Bible. So we ultimately believe that the Spirit inspired the writings and secured their canonization into the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. So, we ultimately believe the Spirit inspired the writings, ensured their canonization. The role of the Spirit, in the Spirit is active in every part of getting the Bible to us, okay? Um, but what is the Spirit's role in actually reading the Bible? Okay? Inter what, is the, what is the Spirit's role in interpreting it? How does the Spirit help us interpret do you need the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible? And here's where I was talking about how I think we kind of assume some things. Because we want to say, yes, we need God. We need the Spirit. We need these things in our life. I think one thing we say sometimes or think sometimes, maybe without really kind of digging in, is, oh, we can't read the Bible or understand the Bible without, without the Spirit. So that's really the question I want to look at. Here's kind of the, probably the, one of the most famous verses to kind of say you have to have the Spirit to understand the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2.14. You may want to turn there because we're going to kind of look at that a little bit. 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this text has often been used to argue the point, you cannot understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit. But so one of the things I want to do is I want to practice something we learned last week. We talked about the norms of utterance that particular words can only mean certain things, and then that author chooses what that word means within that limited scope. So, the word foolishness or folly, and then its significance to the word meaning is what I want to look at. 
Does Paul mean that without the Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, that the Bible is simply gibberish and incomprehensible to people without the Spirit? So I want to look at how Paul uses the word foolish elsewhere in the same book. 1 Corinthians 3.19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. There's that word, foolishness. Does Paul mean that because worldly wisdom is foolishness to God, that God cannot or does not have the mental grasp or understanding of what worldly wisdom is? Is he saying that God doesn't understand worldly wisdom? Or is he saying he understands it and thinks it's, it's silly? Would you all agree that that's the understanding of that? So does God understand what worldly wisdom is and then account it foolishness? Yeah, I think so. So um, God has a mental grasp of what worldly wisdom is, but just thinks that worldly wisdom is foolishness. Um, God knows everything, and of course he understands what worldly wisdom is. We see the, the same pattern, the, the exact same meaning. We don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 1.20, uh, you see the same meaning there of the word foolishness. So apply that understanding of foolishness to our verse in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person does not accept. I think that accept word is also key. But... It says the Bible is foolish, or the things of God are foolish to them. If that does not mean, to be consistent with Paul's understanding, that they don't understand, they don't have a mental grasp of the things of God, of the Bible. It's quite opposite. It is, they, under, they can at least understand, have a mental grasp, know the meaning of the things of God. The difference is they think they're foolish, and so without the Spirit of God, they think the things of God are foolishness. Does that make sense? Okay. Right. So they look at the Bible and say, this is not acceptable. They look at God and say, this is not okay. It's foolishness. It's silly. It's folly. I don't want anything to do with it. Absolutely. We're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we look silly to the world. Foolish, we're the foolish to the world. Absolutely. Um. So it is not that unbelievers cannot read the Bible and comprehend what it says in the, on the same level that you can. They just, when they look at it, they think, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's silly. Why would I ever believe that? Um, well, so, so when, understanding the definition I'm using of understand, and I'm going to give a couple of illustrations that may help. Um, they have the mental capacity to know this is what the author said. But I... But depending on how we're defining meaning, so they understand the meaning, but, they do, but the significance to them is different than us, right? They don't have that same, where they believe it and they think it's true, they stop there. So they don't have, if you use meaning, if you stretch meaning to mean kind of what you're saying, then they don't have the full meaning because they don't believe it. But they, but they can know what the author says. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. A couple of illustrations that I think will help us. One, imagine you have a college assignment. Uh, you know, thinking college, you know, you would read things like Gilgamesh. You would read, you know, whatever old writings. Imagine professor, secular professor gave the assignment to, to read Romans chapter 1 um, and write a 10-page uh, paper on what Paul meant in Romans chapter 1. 
would the Christians in the class get a higher grade than the lost people in the class? Because the Christians understood it better than lost people. No, they might because they might have already known what it meant before they got there. But if they didn't, they're on, the, they're on e- equal playing field in their mental ability to grasp what Paul is saying. An atheist and a Christian can read the text and come to the same conclusion on what it means. If an unbeliever cannot understand the things of God, think about this. I read this today, it was interesting. If an unbeliever cannot understand the things of God, then what hope do we have to reason with them from the scriptures? As Paul says. It's, then it would be dumb for me to stand up here and preach to unbelievers because they couldn't understand it anyway. Um, can I make one clarifying statement? It is foolishness to them. But they can understand what I'm saying. They, they, let me give one more illustration and then see if we agree or not. Uh, I, I gave you the first part of this story a couple weeks ago. Um, German professor, I can't pronounce his name, lectures on Paul's view of justification by faith alone. Um, and as the, the, the account I read of the situation, does it beautifully. The, the author said, this is the best lecture I've ever heard on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, according to Paul. So clear, so accurate, so he, he nailed it. And at the end of the lecture, the professor says, but we all know, of course, that this is all nonsense. Well, then someone at this lecture goes up to the man's wife, who is a Christian. This is a true story. And they asked, what do you think Paul meant by justification by faith alone? And she said, you got to understand my training's in chemistry, not theology. But then with tears in her eyes, she said, I suppose it means that God has done all of the work for us. So my question is, who understands Paul's teaching better, the husband or the wife? The husband who lectured on Paul and understood Paul perfectly, or the wife who had an elementary understanding and believed it? The husband clearly has this full mental grasp of what Paul was trying to say, and he understands the text and he understands theology better than his wife, but it is foolishness to him. He does not accept it as the truth. He doesn't believe it or appreciate it, because to believe it, to accept it, to appreciate it, comes from the Spirit of God. And without the Spirit of God, he cannot, according to our text. Whereas the wife, who has a more simple understanding, believes it and cherishes it. Even though her understanding is not nearly as complete or full as her husband's, it is still correct. Yeah, yeah, he, so she accepts it, she believes it. It's, not, it's, it's acceptable to her where it's foolishness to him. Let me make sure we're using the word understand the same way. Um, so when I say understand, I mean, let me just, use, let me just think of a simple sentence. Uh, okay, we'll use the one we used the other day. Uh, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine. Can an unbeliever read that and know what Paul meant by that? So, that, so I would say extrapolate that same thing to the rest of Scripture. They can read it and know, oh, well, Paul means this. Paul means, um, you know, whatever verse, you know, they can understand what Paul is trying to communicate. But then they look at it and go, but that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But they can understand the implications. Yeah. So I definitely would agree that the Spirit can help us in application and and understanding implications. Um, And and some of that, though, is him drawing back to our mind things that, you know, other parts of Scripture, right? Um, So I definitely think there's a part of that. 
But what I don't want to say is that an unbeliever going to the Bible, like it's almost Spanish to him. Like he just, uh, I just can't, I just can't understand. I can't see anything. And then all of a sudden, oh, because I think what that ends up doing to us is it, it gives us an excuse when we go to the Bible to be lazy and say, well, I'm not really going to work hard at this or use dictionaries or use Bible dictionaries or commentaries. I'm just going to open it to whatever and, and God should speak and I should be able to understand it all. You know what I mean? But so, but do you think though, because, you know, so let me tell his story. So uh, prodigal son, he reads the prodigal son and he, he just understands the prodigal son to mean, you know, you get second chances. He, he gets saved and then he sees the prodigal son and he goes, oh, this is the father and, and the son and me. And he, see, he sees how it actually all fits in. But do you, do you think that was the spirit giving you knowledge you didn't know before? Or do you think, well, now that you've been saved and you, you've, been, you've received new knowledge because now you understand what salvation is. And like, oh, it finally clicked. So the spirit is definitely working belief and illuminating us, I think, in a sense. I just think you get in dangerous territory when you say, like, these people can't read it and understand it. Because think about this. Think about an unbeliever. You hear this testimony. When the Gideons come, what do they tell you? Oh, so-and-so was in the hotel, and, and they were, you know, as far as God as could be. They grabbed a Gideon Bible out of the drawer, read it, believed right there. Right? They were unbelievers when they were reading it, and then they, God converted them. And so they could read it and understand it. And then this... Yeah, but then the Holy Spirit is coming, right, and working faith. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess, I'll, let me say this one thing, we'll move on. I'll just say, yes, they look at that, they look at Christians, they look at uh, the Bible, they look at all the things of God and think, that's silly. Why would I ever want to be a part of that? But it's not that they can't look and, and understand what's going on. They understand what we believe. Like someone can read John three sixteen and know what it means and think, well, that's silly. Why would God ever do that? Why would God, think about this. People say, why would God ever abuse a divine child abuse? So they can understand it, but it's silly and foolishness to them. That's good. Um, so praying that the spirit would help you understand the text because you don't want to spend time consulting commentators or other tools is where there's danger. Um, there is, one commentator says this, there's no special revelation from the spirit that has not already been given in the text itself. And so it's not like he's putting things in your mind that you didn't previously know. Um, the spirit's job in, in interpretation is the same job in the rest of your life. He convicts you. He enables you to believe the truth. Um, he maybe helps you understand how to apply it and gives you the strength to apply it. He empowers you to obey. Um, and so it is good to pray before we read our Bibles. Pray, God, help me to submit to your word. Help me to believe your word. Help me to apply your word. Uh, things like that. Uh, because, think about this, what does it profit a man to understand the Bible's meaning perfectly but never submit to its teachings and obey its implications for our lives? Foolishness. And so to know it, we can do, but with this, we need the spirit to follow through. Um, good. Okay. So we can take the first half on that. Any questions on that? No tracking with me. Okay. This is one book. About through it. This is one book, and it has different rules. We've touched on this a little bit, and now we're going to start digging into it a little bit more. Um, 
there are different literary genres in this one book that make up the Bible. And we must read each book and sections with each book according to the rules that it was written with. Um, when, when the writers write, they have uh, cultural understandings of what poetry is in their day, and they write according to those rules, just like we write today. Here is an example of two, two, the two main types of language. Um, you don't need to remember these words, but referential and commissive. You don't need to remember those, but referential has its main goal as to pass on information. Um, uh, commissive has its main goal as to evoke emotion or elicit feelings. So referential language is like reading a car manual. Not exciting. But it tells you that you need to place your spark plugs, you know, 0. 0.016 inches gap. Very clear. Commissive language is like a love letter. Oh, how my heart is breaking. Oh, how my heart would leap out of my chest if I could just see you. Oh, how there are constant butterflies in my stomach. If we interpret um, commissive language in a way that is uh, re referential, that is literally, when we, like, when we read the card manual, we interpret it literally. That spark plug needs to be 0 0.016 inch gap. And if we read what is uh, commissive language like that, it's going to be quite weird. You mean there are literal butterflies and you're flapping around in your stomach? How your heart is literally going to leap out of your chest? No, of course not. Those are figures of speech. Um, uh, and, and the opposite is also true. Uh, if we read, um, uh, you know, the car manual figuratively, well, then our car is not going to run because we're going to put the spark plug the wrong distance in. And so every genre is set up with its own rules, and we must read them according to the rules that they were written. Uh, rules agreed upon by the society and culture in which it was written. So here's an example. When we read the Psalms, you can't read the Psalms with an understanding of English poetry because they were written in Hebrew. Uh, you might really love haikus, but the Psalms were not written in haiku format. They were written in Hebrew poetry, not English. Another example. When you read Genesis chapter 1, you need to understand not Hebrew poetry, but Egyptian poetry. He, Genesis chapter 1 is a poem in, uh, under the Egyptian poetry kind of framework. How do we know this? Well, Moses wrote it. And who raised Moses? Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. He was trained and educated and taught in the Egyptian schools. And so... He, an, he doesn't become part of his people till later in his life. And so his understanding is more of an Egyptian understanding of poetry. So we got to understand that to understand Genesis 1 a little bit better. Understanding the rules and how, that, uh, how, they, how they form and work together changes how we read and understand. So the first one we're going to look at uh, tonight are Proverbs. Now, a proverb is under the category of wisdom literature. All right, someone tell me some other things that are under the category of wisdom literature. What are some of the other books of the Bible? Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job. I think that's all of them. Um, what is a proverb? Let me give you the generic definition of just proverbs. This is Chinese proverbs, American proverbs, whatever. A proverb is a short, pithy saying, frequently using metaphorical language, 
which expresses a general truth. Now, Proverbs are not just found in the book of Proverbs. They're found throughout the whole Bible. Um, uh, In Job, Ecclesiastes, in James, Jesus often used Proverbs. Uh, They're found in the gospel accounts. And they're scattered throughout all the other books of the Bible as well. Here is the first and most important rule of understanding Proverbs. Proverbs are not laws or they're not promises. Touch on this a little bit, but we're going to tell you about some more. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. What is that verse saying? (laughs) If you give, if you tithe, you give your first fruits, then your barns will be filled and your vats will be overflowing. If you tithe, if you give, then you will receive a lot more. Does tithing ensure that you will be wealthy and successful? Yes or no? Praise the Lord. I didn't have to argue that. <laughs> um, there are plenty of times that people are faithfully giving, faithfully tithing, faithfully giving offerings, and yet they will struggle financially for their whole, their whole lives. A proverb is not a promise, and it is not a law or universal truth. It is a general observation learned from wise and careful look at life. Many other cultures have proverbs that are true as well. But biblical proverbs have an added dimension to them over and above, say, Chinese proverbs. Biblical proverbs are not the result of simple observing life and understanding the truth, but by observing life in the light of divine revelation. Understand when I say the word revelation, I mean God revealing, speaking. So biblical proverbs don't just reveal the best of human wisdom, but that wisdom filtered through the revelation of Scripture and recorded under the direction of the Holy Spirit. A proverb is a short, pithy saying, frequently using metaphorical language was expressed as a general truth. But a biblical proverb is a short, pithy saying that expresses a wise, general truth concerning life from a divine perspective. Because of the general nature of Proverbs, there is the possibility of exceptions. Because Proverbs are general, there can be exceptions to them. Um, Where people who tithe still live in poverty. Or parents who train their children up in the way that they should go have children who grow up to not believe. The existence of these exceptions in no way refutes the truth of the proverb. Because what the proverb says is true the majority of the time. Most often, if you raise your children in the admonition of the Lord, if you train up a child in the way that it should go, most often they will believe. Maybe they'll be a prodigal for a while, but most often they will come back, stay true to the roots. But not always. This is a general truth. The proverb is generally true, but it's not a promise. Let me stop there for a quick second. Questions? Everybody tracking with me? Everybody confused? Yes. Christians should model their lives after all the Proverbs in the Bible. 
Uh, but just know that they're not promises. They are general divine wisdom. Um, and we're going to look at a couple more and, and pick some of those out, but absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I think he's probably talking to believers. Yeah. So everybody else, it's foolishness. Um, here, another example, this is interesting to me. We, you cannot understand really what's going on in the book of Job, in the story of Job, unless you understand this very problem. That Proverbs are general wisdom, but there are exceptions and they're not promises. So you know the story of Job. Job is a righteous man who lives before God. The devil comes to God and he says, God, if you let me tempt Job, if you let me take these things away from him, if you let me kill his family, take all his riches away, he will surely curse you and die. And God says, give it your best shot. And so the devil goes, it gets the boils, it kills his family, takes his riches, all this stuff. Job's life is horrible now. And then... Job's like, doesn't understand what's going on. And Job's friends come to comfort him and give him advice. Uh, and they remind him of a couple Proverbs. Now, I don't think these Proverbs are in the Bible, but they are Proverbs of the day. Job 4, 7 through 8 says, the friends say to Job, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You reap what you sow, right? And then again they say in chapter 8, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against, against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. What were Job's friends trying to say to Job? Your fault. You sinned, and if you will repent and come and own up to God, God will, make, God will fix this. He'll make it right. But the reason this is happening to you is because you sinned. Now, did Job sin against God? No. And so, these proverbs that they were trying to apply to Job and say, hey, this is why what's going on because you, dis, you, you, know, you disobeyed these proverbs. Proverb tells us that the only reason something like this would happen to you is because if you sinned. But what we must understand, to understand Job, is that that's not true. Job, Job didn't, this wasn't a result of Job's sin. This was just God allowing the devil to do it. He didn't. But the, so the friends were wrong. This was an exception to the Proverbs. He hadn't sinned. He didn't need to repent. So understanding what Proverbs are helps us even understand the story of Job. That Proverbs are generally true, but not always true. But since they are generally true, they are principles. See, Alan, I was gonna, I was gonna say this. They are, they are principles that Christians should build their lives upon. Let's go look at some New Testament examples. There are Proverbs in the New Testament. And let's ask a couple of questions about these. I want to ask y'all, let's have some dialogue, and then we're going to actually let y'all do this at your table. So we're going to ask the question, what does it mean? Are there exceptions, or is this always true? Maybe we'll find a proverb that's universally true. And what are the implications or applications for today? What does it mean? Are there any exceptions? And what does it mean for today? Matthew 6, 24, the Jesus using a proverb. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
What's he mean? Because you can't love God or serve God in the world, all right? Pretty clear, okay? Are there any exceptions to that? Particularly the money part. Is that always true? Are there exceptions? What is true, is it always true? Can there be an exception? Can you love God and money? It kind of depends on how you understand a couple of these words. Right? So, like, you can be rich and love God, right? But you can't be like the rich young ruler. It's all mine. Yeah, what's first? Right. Okay. Um, what does that mean for us today? Does that apply to us today? How does it apply? Put him first. You can't only serve him. All right, let's look at another one. Matthew 6, 34. This will be a little tricky. This is one use, this is a coffee cup verse, all right? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What does that mean? Don't borrow trouble. What? Don't look for it. Don't worry. You got enough problems today. Don't be worried about tomorrow's problems. You can worry about these problems today. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, so don't worry. Is that true? It's a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds good. Are there exceptions to that? Are there times you should worry about tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. If I'm preaching tomorrow, should I be thoughtful of that, maybe worry about that a little bit? Worry may not be the right word, but are there things to, to worry about? I may not be. Are there exceptions to that? Should there be times that we worry about tomorrow or never? Of course, well, we absolutely we do. Yes, yeah. That's true, that's true. It's a negative thing, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Let's look at another one. <laughs> that's right. Yep, that's that's good. That's a, that's a perfect application. <laughs> Girl, you hermeneuticated right. That's right. That's good. That's perfect. Matthew nineteen twenty four. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, can rich men come to the kingdom of God? It is a little harder. It is generally harder because generally speaking, rich people love their money. But it's not impossible because rich people may not love their money more than Jesus. All right. Last one. Mark 6, 4. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Is that generally true? Yes, it is. That means when I go home to North Carolina, people don't care at all what I say. Um, when you go home, you, you at work might be the bomb diggity. You might be the guy to come to. And when you go home, people don't care how much you know about computers, how much you know about this or that. You're just Sally Mae, Bobby Joe, and, you know, I know you. So, you, so when you go home, everybody knows you and it's different. That's right. Jesus is like that. Are there exceptions to that? 
you can go home and people respect you. It can be different. It doesn't happen often, but it can happen. So, all right, we've got a few minutes. So here's what I want you to do. Grab your Bibles at your table. I want you to, I'm going to give you a proverb. I want you to discuss what does it mean? Are there any exceptions or is it universally true? And how might, what might it mean for, mean for today? And then I'll give you a few minutes and then we'll share them out loud. First one is Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Okay, I got one more for you, so I want to hear about this. Tell me, uh, what do you think that proverb means? Don't be lazy. You snooze, you lose. All right, everybody agree with that? I love, uh, I love the word sluggard. Such a good word. Sluggard, yeah. You sluggard. A little folding of the hands. Now, is that universally always true, or are there exceptions to this proverb? Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that hit home a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You can go to the government, get on disability when you shouldn't be, maybe. Get on welfare. Yep. Trick the system a little bit. Yeah, that's good. You could be held up, you know, you could be 40 years old in your parents' basement and getting them pay for everything. So it is generally true, but... In America particularly, maybe not often true. There's ways around that. Uh, that's good. That's good. Um, what, what, is that applicable today? Implications for today? Yeah, like if you're lazy, you will be 40 years old in your parents' basement. You don't work, you don't eat. Unless you got a mama that really loves you. All right, uh, got a couple minutes. I'm going to do one more. It's a little longer, but it takes the length to kind of, it's kind of a story, um, but I think it's very applicable to today. Proverbs 7, so just one chapter, 6 through 27, verse 6 through verse 27. All right, what does it mean? <laughs> What's it mean? Don't be seduced. Yeah. 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 Stay away from things you know better than to be involved in. Uh-huh. Absolutely. What else? Lust is an alluring, enticing thing that looks and sounds great but will kill you. Don't put yourself in a, in a situation that you can't say no to. Know yourself. Let me ask you this question. Is this proverb always true? Can you put yourself in a situation that you shouldn't be in and still not sin? You shouldn't, 
but you can't, right? So for example, should I, uh, if, you know, when I'm dating, uh, dating Kate, should me and Kate go to her house with no one there, with the lights off, say until one in the morning, cuddling on the couch? Probably not wise. Probably not. <laughs> but theoretically, some man out there somewhere might be able to control himself. But most of us could not. So don't put yourself in those situations. Um, I think of the, I think of, uh, when I read this, I think of the siren. I know about the siren, that, that mermaid-like creature who sings her song and, and, and lures the ship, the sailors on the ship to steer toward it and makes them crash into the shore. But, they, but when they hear the siren song, they can't help. They know they're heading for destruction, but it doesn't matter because it sounds so beautiful. Man, that, I mean, I feel like this paints that picture beautifully. Like, you walk down the street, you go down that, that time you're not supposed to, you know she lives there, you know she's going to come out, but man, you just can't help yourself. What are implications for, for today on this text that the author wasn't thinking about, but are within, within the pattern of meaning? What? Television? Don't be watching Skinamax, maybe? Pornography on the internet, right? Like, Maybe you need to like not look at certain things, yeah? Great example, great example. So for example, yeah, that's a great implication because the text isn't talking about money, but an imp- so the meaning's not money, but an implication is money. It's great, it's perfect. Um, excellent, what else? Uh, I want to say James, James, yeah, yeah, like Joseph, take off, because if you linger, it's, it's that second look that'll get you, yeah, yeah, it's too late to get you. <laughs> Anything else, other implications? All right, that was great. Ooh, yeah, he had no sense. Yeah, yes, yeah. Like, so I think the wisdom is don't be walking down that street where you know that girl is at nighttime where nobody's going to see you. Because here's the, the temptation is always no one will know, no one will find out. It's just one time. It's just a little thing. That's, it's always, it's, and so get, there's a great, um, there's a Christian group called the Grey Havens. And uh, I want to read you this because it's just so good. Um, they have a song called uh, Siren. And it's talking about this moment of where they're on the ship and they hear the siren, siren call. And here's the words. Um, One taste of the sound from the sirens in the water, and I'm thinking I should get out my sharpest sword and suit of armor, right? I hear the sound. It's time to fight. Let's fight this thing so I can be ready to strike. But I pause one more time, one last taste of the sound. Then I'll cut these sirens down. But as they sang, 
I forgot they were death, so I brought them my heart to be filled and followed them. Oh, that's good. And so I think that that's always temptation. Oh, I'll just listen one more time. And then I'll fight it, I'll turn it off. One more quick look. But by then, it's entranced you and you, here's my heart. I think the end of this says it well. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Go over even a little bit more. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are mighty throng. No matter how strong you think you are, be wise and don't look again. Now, there are exceptions. You can hang out with your girlfriend till midnight and maybe be okay. Not a smart thing to do. So, Christians should pattern their lives after the Proverbs and all Proverbs in the Bible because they are divine wisdom. Generally true. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, you know, people call that the Billy Graham rule. And so, like, I, I would never go to, I'm never in the car with a woman by myself um, of, of any age. Yeah, pretty much. I might be in the car with you. We might make that exception for that. But pretty much, I don't get in a, a car with a woman. I do. It's, <laughs> um, I do not. If, if people come up to me at church and they say, hey, I forgot to put my offering in the plate and they try to hand me cash, I ain't touching it. They hand me a check, that's okay. I can't cash that. But they hand me cash, I ain't touching it. Or I'll get somebody else and say, hey, you see me giving, hey, Rusty, come here, and we'll walk it together. We put a, uh, we put a, a drop box in the office for that very reason that we can, so we can watch me put the cash in and lock it up. Because um, sometimes it's even the accusation, right? Did y'all see the pastor riding around with that young lady? And sometimes, sometimes you could have Ryan in the back and there's an, the girl's up front, but it just looks bad. So you give up a Ryan up front. Hide the, hide the lady. That's what you do. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Hey, guys, good job. Next week, we're going to look at prophecy, how to interpret and understand prophecy, as well as uh, Psalms. And we'll see if we can get through those. Speaking of Ryan, he's calling me from Texas. All right, love you guys. Peace out.